Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today I'll be covering episode 221, entitled Question Mark. This is the 45th overall episode, and there are 76 to go. First, though, a bit of reflection. Of course, Happy New Year to everyone. Uh, This also is a time of year that's starting to uh, get us closer to some anniversaries regarding the podcast. Uh, It was January 2nd when I uh, first secured the uh, the email, looking back at lost at gmail.com, as I was uh, starting to get my various thoughts together as to uh, to doing this podcast. So there we go. And of course, we're about mm, six weeks away from the... uh, one year of uh, the one year anniversary of when episodes actually uh, started to hit the internet, but uh, well, certainly uh, some some fun reflections indeed as we enter the new year. Uh, I'll also mention a few other projects right off the bat. Uh, this, of course, being January, uh, in a few weeks' time, of course, uh, a show that perhaps is being looked at as uh, a successor to Lost, uh, Alcatraz, will start to air at least here in the U.S. And uh, if you are so interested, you can join me and a few of the other people from phgeek.com on our Alcatraz podcast, which is available uh, at uh, alcatraz.podbean.com, and also by searching iTunes for the Alcatraz podcast by phgeek.com. And I will lastly mention that uh, if you are interested in doing your own Alcatraz podcast, we've also set up the Alcatraz podcast network, available at alcatrazpodcastnetwork.com, and... uh, we can all get together and uh, hopefully check out this show, which, uh, with any luck, will be uh, in the same vein as Lost. Anyhow, let's uh, start to focus a bit about this podcast. Let me share some some feedback, especially since it's been uh, a couple of weeks since I've recorded the podcast. I kind of built up a built up a good uh, a, a good reserve, and then with the holidays here, promptly blasted through them while uh, while not recording new podcasts, but. Anyhow, I got uh, a great uh, message from Andrew on Twitter, and he said the following. Matt, surprised uh, someone as perceptive as you missed this. In your Dave podcast, you mentioned how the deck having 23 people on it but only being uh, built for eight was another numbers reference. Think about it in the context of the island. 23, Jack leading the island, but built for eight. Hurley to take over. Obviously not planned, but still awesome. Keep up the good work. Andy from Glasgow. I absolutely, positively love that catch. I would agree that it probably wasn't quote-unquote on purpose, but uh, as I oftentimes say, now that the, particularly now that the show is over, uh, you know, uh, kind of critical analysis, whether it's done by us uh, lay people or by people smarter than us, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, uh, analysis falls to the audience and to those wanting to do analysis, and it's not... Uh, you know, the Lost is no longer a a product owned by its uh, you know, by its writers, by its creators. It's now something that uh, you know, it's over. They can't add new stuff to it. Hopefully, at least they don't pull a George Lucas and you know have I don't know Libby shooting first or something, a la Han Solo shooting first, uh, or not. Anyhow, 
it's up to us to be making these connections. And my goodness, uh, built for 23, uh, or pardon me, you know, 23 were there, but it was built for eight, just as number 23 Jack, uh, I believe Andy is suggesting, was, uh, you know, a presumable uh, leader of the island, but only actually was built for number eight Hurley. So excellent, excellent, excellent catch there. Uh, moving on, I also got a couple of emails from Tad, and Tad had actually, uh, well, when I say emails, Tad had actually left some uh, some comments on lookingbackatlost.podbean.com, which uh, is a, a rare way for people to be sharing feedback, although it's a great way to get in touch with me, and I, I welcome others to do it. Um, so thank you very much, Tad, and I'll share a little bit of what uh, Tad had to say. Hey there, nice podcast. I recently watched the series again, and uh, Tad's making reference to 213, The Long Con, saying that that's one of, uh, one, one of the favorites. To answer the question you post, posed about why many people still like Sawyer's character, despite him being uh, made a not-so-nice guy, Tad says, I believe it's because he is fairly honest about who he is, or at the very least he's not in denial. He's often ostracized and treated like a pariah for his self-centered actions. As he performs heroic deeds, he is rewarded. You also get the impression he feels genuine remorse for killing a man that he was tricked into believing was his lifelong target. So, excellent, excellent point there from Tad. Um, and I think I think it's totally true. I think that that might be the answer. Sawyer is upfront with who he is. Sawyer is honest about who he is. He's accepted his own dark side. He knows that he is driven by this need for revenge. He can kind of, you know, sit down on the psychiatrist's couch and explain why he is this way. And, um, you know, he's not, he's not in denial about who he is. Uh, excellent, excellent point there. Uh, last but not least, of course, it wouldn't be uh, time for feedback if not to hear from Bonnie, the wonderful, wonderful Bonnie, who uh, I must confess I've, I've been... Uh, I've been remiss in answering uh, some of her emails as well as getting back to Tad and a few others just with the the holiday season being upon us. But uh, as I said, it wouldn't be the same if we didn't hear from Bonnie. So Bonnie also uh, emailed about Dave. She said, Dave was an episode I was dreading, uh, but for the life of me, I couldn't have told you why. After listening to your podcast, it became clear. The first time through, all I could think of was, no, don't go there. Don't make it all be in his mind. I just forgave you for fire and water. If this was some sort of dream, I'm so done with Lost. Close quote. At least Bonnie quoting herself. Bonnie's email continues with her saying, What a shame I had failed to appreciate Cynthia Watros's tender and nuanced performance. The rewatch was made uh, much richer by having heard your thoughts first. So thank you, as always, my, my dear fan, Bonnie. And uh, thank you, uh, Andrew and uh, Tad, for also sharing your thoughts as well. Um... Rather fitting here that uh, we have Bonnie mentioning Cynthia Watros' performance in Dave. Uh, here we have her uh, her final performance, uh, if you'll call it that. Here she's, you know, in, in today's episode, question mark. She, uh, you know, this, of course, is where she dies. Uh, she obviously appears as a character a couple more times this season and then, you know, returns in the flash sideways and, not, and whatnot. But, you know... It's worth mentioning here before we get into the summary to question mark. Um, yeah, it, I wonder if killing off Cynthia Watros was the way to go. I mean, it, you know, kind of we, the audience, paid the price and it gave an opportunity for Jorge Garcia to uh, to, to act, uh, you know, opposite her, her dying body and all that. But I don't know. I 
would it have been so bad to have Hurley have a girlfriend for a couple more seasons? I mean, certainly she could have been killed, you know, down the line more, but I don't know, whatever, I guess <laughs> that's all, you know, that that's the flip side of the show being over. We don't, uh, you know, it is what it is. So with that, let's now get into the Wikipedia summary for this episode, question mark. In flashbacks, Echo is a priest in Australia. An associate gives him a counterfeit passport before he is sent to investigate a miracle of a drowned girl named Charlotte coming back to life on the autopsy table. At first, it appears the miracle is genuine. Echo then consults the girl's father, Richard Malkin, the psychic that Claire visited and raised by another. Malkin claims that Charlotte and her mother are simply pretending there was a miracle because they resent the fact he is a fraudulent psychic. Echo reports that a miracle did not take place. In the final flashback, Echo is confronted by Charlotte at the airport, who tells him that she saw Yemi while she was in between the worlds and that his brother is proud of him. Angered, Echo starts to yell at Charlotte, who's interrupted by Libby, asking if everything is alright. On the island, in a dream, Mr. Echo is chopping wood with his axe on the beach. He's told by Anna Lucia and his brother Yemi that he must help John Locke, who has, quote, lost his way by having John take him to, quote, the question mark. Michael stumbles out of the hatch, claiming that he has been shot in the arm by a person unknown to him, implied to be Ben. Sawyer, Kate, and Jack discover the shooting victims. Anna Lucia is dead, and Libby is near death. When Michael realizes that Libby is still alive, he is fearful that she will reveal the truth of what actually happened. Jack asks Sawyer for the heroine to make Libby comfortable. He also asks Kate to go with him, giving him the choice of disclosing the location of the guns or allowing Libby to die painfully. Sawyer resentfully agrees, and the guns turn out to be in a secret compartment inside his tent. Echo offers to track down Henry Gale with the assistance of Locke, but after they have left, he reveals that his real goal is to force Locke to take him to the question mark, where they discover the burned plane uh, containing Echo's brother. They camp on the site, and John has a dream in which Yemi is at the top of the nearby cliff. After he wakes up, Echo climbs the hill and from the top looks down and is able to see a giant question mark etched in the grass adjacent to the plane. At least that's what the show would lead you to believe. I would argue that you really can't see it's a question mark, but whatever. Back to the summary here. He climbs back down and with Locke's help pushes aside the plane to find a hatch hidden underneath. Inside the hatch, there are chairs, TV monitors, and pneumatic tubes. Locke places his map in one of the tombs, and it, it is swept away. Locke also finds another computer terminal with a command prompt asking if he would like to print. Locke inputs Y, and a nearby dot matrix printer begins to print out what appears to be an extensive list of timestamps. Echo also finds another orientation movie, where it is revealed that uh, the hatch they are in is Station 5 The Pearl, and it was made to observe the other stations and record how the subjects react to things of great importance. The narrator of the orientation video reveals that those in the other hatches are undergoing a psychological experiment, and the pneumatic tubes are used to send information back to the Dharma Initiative. Locke thinks that he has been played a fool, and does not believe the button to have any use. However, Mr. Echo believes that pushing the button is highly important, and he will continue to do so if Locke stops. At the Swan, Hurley requests to speak to Libby, and he tearfully apologizes to her for forgetting the blankets. In her dying breath, she says, Michael, with a look of terror in her eyes. Jack, mistaking her horror as fear for Michael's safety, 
reassures her that Michael is fine. Crowley starts to cry, as does Kate. Sawyer hugs Kate, and she cries in his arms. Locke and Echo are seen making their way back to the swan. As the timer starts to sound, the number is needing to be entered into the computer. The episode ends with Michael in the armory, looking gravely toward the doorway, his plan unfolding, with Anna Lucia dead beside him. So with that, let's now get to my thoughts about the episode. I'll, I'll mention, by the way, that was a, a particularly good Wikipedia summary that I just bound just like that. Didn't require any any tweaking or any excessive kind of, you know, character explanations like, you know, John Locke, blah, blah, blah. So anyhow, uh, the, the recap for this episode, not for this episode, the recap at the top of this episode is a reminder that if you haven't been watching lately, boy, that's not good for you. People are getting shot. There's a guy in the hatch and Michael's returned and it's just all pandemonium. Uh, the episode proper opens with Echo building his church and things immediately start to confuse us as not shot Anna starts asking Echo about his church. Uh, it's interesting that Anna calls what's going on a dream, then immediately takes her shot form, which is to say blood coming from her mouth, a hole in her chest, uh, and she says to help John. Cut to Echo in the hatch, where Yemi is apparently there, telling him to help John. Now, this is a dream, and momentarily we'll see Echo uh, wake up, And but what is the source of this vision? Is it random? Is it divine? I can only assume that it's the smoke monster who's doing brain scanning here and whispering there and pushing and pulling the people around him. Uh, to me, that's the only logical answer. And uh, indeed, when we see later in the episode when um, uh, Locke has a dream of himself being Echo talking to Yemi, right? So Locke is dreaming that Echo is uh, climbing up the wall and talking to, to Yemi. How would Locke know about Yemi? What we see is apparently exactly what uh, what uh, Locke sees, and how would Locke know about that? To me, the only answer is that, you know, how would Locke know so well what Yemi looks like? It's because it's being, uh, oh, perhaps implanted is a bit a bit heavy, but that's that's maybe the best word of all that these these memories are being um, implanted into Locke's uh, brain by uh, by the smoke monster. Anyhow, with that, we uh, we cut to Kate. Uh, well, that is after Locke wakes up and says he's had a dream. Uh, we cut to Kate, Locke, Jack, and Sawyer going to the hatch. Uh, there's some great banter and uh, also some sly recap about who's at fault for letting Anna Lucia have the gun. Uh, and there's a great Sawyer line concerning Locke being Gimpy McGee. Locke, of course, is on uh, is on crutches from the uh, the blast door injury. Uh, when they get to the hatch, Michael spills out, and he's blaming Ben, somebody who he says he didn't recognize, uh, for having shot him. As if we already didn't hate Michael from the last episode, that clearly does not match what we saw. We saw Michael shoot himself, so, you know, big, big red flags up as if Michael shooting two beloved characters didn't do that already. Uh, the group enters the hatch. There's dead Anna Lucia. And, you know, it's interesting, interesting way she is placed dead. You know, there she is on the couch, kind of serene, but also, you know, eyes still open. Um, as I said before, it must be terribly strange as an actor to be playing dead. You know, your entire thing, no lines, just don't move, please, don't breathe while we're while we're shooting. Thank you very much. Um, 
Michael then looks over at Libby. It's kind of this, you know, she's dead, Anne Lucy's dead, Libby's dead, just in time for Libby to suddenly jerk awake, spitting thick black blood. Very nice touch. The look on Michael's face is that of a fish going from the frying pan into the fire. It's just contained horror. It's it's wonderful. It's it's a high point of uh, of acting from uh, Mr. Perrineau. Uh With that, we go to the title card. And afterwards, there's the slow, soft, last rites from Echo to Anna Lucia, with Giacchino playing the scene beautifully. Uh, this softness is contrasted by a painful-sounding Libby moaning and gurgling and likely dying. Uh, it's it's one of those things, it's what you don't see. It's just kind of ooey-gooey, juicy, and... I mean, I was going to say nice. It's not obviously not nice in that, you know, we care for Libby and we feel bad about this, but it's a, it's an excellent uh, presentation. And, of course, TV medicine tells us that a gut shot to the to the gut uh it's bad news particularly when you're on the island and kind of uh you know without the uh the help of the team from er or gray's anatomy or or whatever uh fancy tv uh, hospital is your is your pick uh with that a plan is devised to go get ben uh it's echo and lock teaming up uh which certainly suits the uh the directive from the dream and uh, with that, we flash back to a rather bored-looking Echo the Priest, rather mechanically taking confession. Uh, he he looks bored. He looks, uh, you know, he looks like he's just kind of going through the through the rhythm here. Uh, but he's taking confession from a guy who it is revealed is forging a passport for Echo. Uh, there's discussion about Echo getting ready to leave uh, Australia in order to come to America. Uh, but at that point, Echo's plans are interrupted by nothing less than a miracle. No, you don't understand. She came back to life. We were out in the back blocks, and Charlotte must have slipped. And she went into the river, and she's not much of a swimmer. She was dead. And the next day, she woke up. Don't you understand? It's a miracle. A confirmation of faith. Everyone needs to know about this. Where People is your need- daughter now? You know, I'll share kind of, uh, kind of candidly here that that particular clip, uh, I had an interesting personal reaction uh, without, without uh, saying too much and, and betraying any, uh, any, any privacy. Uh, this past summer, I was uh, working at a uh, working at a place where. Um, a uh, uh, a young girl, uh, not at the place where I was working, but but in her in her summer home, uh, drowned to death in, in the pool, and it was uh, you know shocking thing. Everything was fine on Friday, and uh, you know by the time Monday came, there was uh, you know a drastically different, uh, drastically different feeling to to things uh, amongst the staff, and and you can imagine uh, how steps were taken to to. You know, try and comfort the uh, uh, you know remaining children uh, uh, when they returned and that sort of thing. So again, I'm not 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 certainly not trying to make light of it or share it for entertainment purposes, but just um, it's funny how uh, you know little stuff can just have that effect on on you. Um, and I mean, frankly, it kind of made me 
you know, <laughs> made me a bit down that there aren't aren't always miracles such as such as this as expressed and lost. But um, uh, and I suppose with that, just carrying on to the next bit of my notes here, you know, there's you know certainly within the context of the show, here we are. We're seeing a mother who I think clearly desperately wants to believe in this being a miracle. Um, and the scene ends with Echo declaring that he doesn't believe her. And the Monsignor says that's why he was chosen. And I guess there's kind of this question here, is that ominous uh, or is that kind of a, a test of faith? Uh, certainly we don't see the Monsignor again, uh, at least in this episode. And um, is he choosing Echo because he sees some of that questioning of faith in Echo's part? That, that we too have seen with Echo kind of boredly going through, you know, oh, you must be penitent if you're going to do confession. You know, it's not, his heart isn't really in this. Um, is he being sent to squash this? Is he being sent so that if it is a true miracle that, uh, you know, the the glory of the Lord will, will re-inspire him and that's what the Monsignor is counting on? Or is the Monsignor counting on things just being squashed? Uh I don't know. I don't know that the show gives us any any concrete answer, but um, it's just, I mean, certainly this is an episode laden with a religious uh, discussion just beneath the surface without it being a religious episode, quote unquote. Religion is uh, religion in a broad sense and certainly not the the uh, specificity of the Catholic faith that Echo represents, Uh, but this notion of faith is certainly explored in the episode. And I mean, I suppose when it's all said and done, uh, the product of whatever the Monsignor uh, was looking for, the product of this episode or the product of this uh, investigation that Echo undergoes is to give him a greater sense of faith because, you know, skipping ahead towards uh, the end of the episode, uh, the, the girl, uh, presumed to have drowned uh you know essentially gives echo a mess not even essentially literally gives uh echo a message from yemi uh thereby kind of proving you know the world of faith and the world of an afterlife and that sort of thing uh in echo's mind um anyhow (laughs) after this rather sad trip down uh memory lane for echo and myself and miracles and drownings uh, we return back to the island where Echo and Locke are talking about the question mark. Uh, Locke denies uh, having having heard about it, uh, and we might agree with him at first, lest we forget about Locke seeing the question mark on the blast door map. Of course, with that, just as some people's memories are, are awakening to that, Locke whips out his copy uh, of the blast door map drawn from memory. The scene ends with Locke being reminded that he has followed a dream once. Echo's saying, let's follow this dream of the question mark, just as you have followed your dream of the hatch. With that, we return to flashback. And it's then one of the scariest things that Lost has ever done, in my view. Uh, It's the autopsy tape, which uh, has the undertaker walking out of the room. I I figured you want to have a listen to yourself. If you've turned up your sound here, you probably want to lower it back down at this point. (laughs) 
Take it. No, please. I don't want to ever listen to that tape again. I wouldn't mind not listening to that tape uh, again myself. It certainly is jarring and kind of the visuals that one gets of, you know, an, auto- an autopsy starting on someone who's not fully dead is, uh, well, it's pretty gruesome. Uh, with that, uh, we return out of the flashback to Echo and Locke trying to follow the map. And at this point, I actually had some memories of another podcast. Uh, I've mentioned before the, uh, the Lost podcast entitled Lost Casts. Uh, which is available at lostcasts.com. And uh, they, you know, they, they were uh, podcasting the episodes as they, as they premiered, uh, you know, during the run of the show. And for this episode, I had sent in some uh, musings about uh, the way the map is held and the orientation of certain things. I don't remember the particulars, but, uh, you know, back in that blast door map craze that we were all under. And uh, this was the, uh, the first time that I had my my thoughts shared on Lost Casts and uh, my name read aloud, and I felt I felt very proud indeed. So, for those of you who are personal fans of myself, you can go to LostCasts.com, download the episode for question mark, and you can you can hear my thoughts then. So, uh, anyhow, back to this podcast and back to this episode. Uh, Echo and Locke find the drug plane. And uh, Locke does a wonderful job recounting Boone's death. Uh, he says it with the sound of a, of a weary man whose faith has been slowly tested, slowly strained, slowly kind of, you know, drained out of him. Uh, with that, we go back to, to our hatch, the swan hatch. Uh, and Jack is slowly breaking the news that Libby isn't going to make it. Michael, uh, or rather, Harold Perrineau, plays the scene to perfection. He's asking just enough questions in order to cover his butt. Uh, Also, there's a a little bit more of the Jack-Kate-Sawyer triangle. Jack sends Kate to go with Sawyer to get the heroin to be used as a, at the very least, as a painkiller, if not as a... I mean, and the episode does not explore this in any way. I think it would be inappropriate to do so. But I think that... There's the slight possible implication that it's being used as a painkiller slash overdose uh, type situation, you know, kind of a, a, you know, a mercy, I mean, mercy killing kind of sounds so, so harsh, but clearly Libby's done. Clearly she's toast. Jack all but says that. Um, I have no idea what happens when you overdose on heroin aside from, uh, seeing Pulp Fiction, I guess. Um, so I don't know if it does kind of send you into a deep, you know, deep sleep and then death, or if it's some kind of rather traumatic, dramatic thing with, you know, foaming and foaming at the mouth and flopping around and whatnot. But at the very least, that that crossed my mind if Jack was, under the circumstances, just pushing Libby's boat out into the, 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 river, of, uh, the river of life towards the end. But anyhow... Jack, Kate, Sawyer, Triangle. Jack's sending Kate with Sawyer to go get the heroin from his stash. Uh, and then Sawyer calls him on why this is. Kate is going to uh, to see the gun stash, part of the stash. Uh, and if uh, Sawyer says no, then Sawyer can't get the heroin to help Libby's pain. Uh, it's a nice touch, by the way, that the stash is in Sawyer's tent right under his bed. He's been protecting it every night when he goes to bed. 
Then with that, the show decides to start to slowly break our hearts. Hey guys. You seen Libby around? There's this soft, slow uh, look of weight on Kate's face. Uh, They then cut to a long, long shot for Kate to break the news. Because what words can be written here? You know, what what could she say that wouldn't sound kind of trite in TV? Um, You know, as she just kind of shares this terribly sad news. I wonder, too, if it's perhaps a reflection of confidence or, or a certain lack of confidence in how... Uh, Jorge Garcia might have portrayed that. Uh, I certainly don't know. I mean, he's you know certainly beloved from the show, and uh, if uh, well, some people who are in the know might know that uh, on the uh, the Alcatraz podcast we're doing, there was uh, some a, a frankly stated opinion about Mr. Garcia, which uh, people in certain certain quarters did not care for, and uh, that they banged their sticks quite loudly about. But that's that's a story for another day. Uh, back to this episode, uh, after that sad scene, we are back on the drug plane with, uh, Yemi again appearing. And again, spoiler alert, in my view, this is all kind of the, the machinations of the smoke monster. Uh, he zips up the vine wall, Echo's following him, then he kind of knocks Echo down, uh, and then it's revealed to us that this is all Locke's dream. How could they have common dreams with that common character of Yemi? It's the brain scan magic from the smoke monster. I'm telling you. Uh, Locke reveals uh, that the plan was for them to climb up the the vine wall, as shown in the the dream. Uh, Then we head towards one of the greatly debated mysteries of this episode. But first, we flash back to Echo's investigation at the girl's house, which is that of Richard, Claire's psychic. Uh, by the way, the daughter is excellent casting, kind of buggy, crazy eyes, um, you know, with their own story to tell type thing. Uh, Richard the Psychic explains that uh, it was not some miracle, it was not death, that it was hypothermia, misdiagnosed by a lousy undertaker. And why would his wife call it a miracle then? Spite me. Why would she spite you? Because she knows I'm a fraud. Because I make my living as a psychic. You see, that's what I do. I gather intelligence on people, and I exploit it. Every day, I meet people looking for a miracle, desperate to find one. But there are none to be had. Not in this world, anyway. I will report back to my Monsignor. What? Claire's psychic? Not real? At least that's what the show is, uh suggesting to us i think it's here just to just to stir the pot a bit uh i mean certainly there's no kind of ultra conclusive uh way you know to to address this um we're meant to be saying you know was claire's psychic a con man did he really tell her that the baby uh must not be raised by another in order to put it in those hands of the people waiting in la or was it not to be raised by an other in order to keep him out of the hands of uh Ben and Company. Um, I recall, and you know, it doesn't say it in the Wikipedia or in the uh, Lostpedia entry for this episode, but I recall from that Claire episode raised by another reference was made to there being a cut scene, I think from this episode, that uh, said, uh, that said, 
that reference was made to him, um, you know, kind of con and Claire, essentially. Uh, let's see if it's here on Lostpedia. Yep, here we go. The the imperfection of Lostpedia that this tidbit is not in uh, the Echo episode, uh, in this episode, question mark. But anyhow, uh, on the Lost Season 2 DVD, there's a previously unseen clip uh, when the navigation moves from Echo to Richard Malkin. Malkin tells Echo he was paid $16,000 by a couple in Los Angeles to convince a pregnant girl to board a plane. Uh, then, of course, it mentions this is a deleted scene and as such, not necessarily canon. Um, I kind of appreciate that they left that out because it does add to the question of it all. Uh, oh, pardon me. Leaving it out adds to the question of it all. Had it remained in there, then yes, he was a fraud. Um, so I kind of like that they very wisely didn't keep that in. Um, I mean, granted, this is an episode, too, that also is... is long uh for time but um it's it's a better episode without it regardless of whether it's a 46 minute episode or 42 minute episode anyhow with that we go back to echo's island climb and uh he almost slips for a dramatic effect before making it to the top from there he sees what really continues to look like a circle with a plane under it uh, if you ask me, uh, it did back then. I wondered if there was going to be some sort of, uh, improvement on it in, uh, for this episode in the, you know, the, the Netflix, Blu-ray, DVD, final series, copy, etc. Uh, I'm not seeing it. I know that there's plenty of diagrams online where people have traced out where the question mark is. To me, you could still trace a circle and then still have the dot where, uh, where the, the plane fire was. Um, I know that it, it really is meant to be, uh, you know, it's meant to be the Pearl station. The question mark is meant to be the Pearl. And, uh, I know I'm wrong about that, but, uh, to me, it just doesn't quite, you know, it doesn't quite look like it. If you ask me, um, indeed, as I'm, you know, you're kind of seeing how the sausage gets made here on. On the podcast, as I look up the Pearl on Lostpedia, um, let's see. Oh, I thought I had it right here. Uh, reference definitely is made somewhere on here that uh, there's no question that it was meant, you know, the question mark was meant to be uh, to be the Pearl. And of course, I'm not seeing it here at all. So it goes to show you uh, a little bit of a lack of excellent research on my part for this episode. Apologies. Um, anyhow. Lindelof and Cuse, I know, have said that the question mark uh, is meant to reference the Pearl Hatch, so there you go. Um, there's a nice moment of Locke and Echo. They both help each other to open up the Pearl Hatch, and then they look down into, into its uh, opening, uh, and it's kind of a dropping camera shot similar to that of Season 1. Uh, almost a reverse. Here we are looking overhead at them looking down as opposed to the camera looking up at them, but... Just kind of a nice, you know, here we are, a new hatch kind of moment. This, of course, being the most dramatic moment, we go to the swan hatch with Jack smashing the Virgin Mary and opening up the heroine. Uh, there's a great uh, tracking shot of Kate, then Michael, then... We were going to have our first date. A date? Yeah. Picnic on the beach. 
I'm glad you're okay, man. And of course, there the ultimate irony that he's glad that Michael is okay. Uh, it's a sad, defeated Hurley. There's true sadness on his face. Uh, and then, of course, just that kicker of being happy that Michael is okay. And of course, you know, the show balancing uh, well between kind of, uh, you know, character moments and action moments. We then move from that uh, sad moment straight to Echo and Locke going down the hatch. It certainly has not taken long this time. Uh, there's a quick look around the hatch, including a fairly fresh-looking exhausted cigarette. Uh, or pardon me, extinguished uh, cigarette. <laughs> I guess you'd be exhausted, too, if you were burned to a crisp. But uh, a fairly-looking uh, extinguished cigarette, which I believe is then referenced back in uh, the one of the hideous Nicky and Paolo episodes. I know certainly at the time, tons of... Uh, Tons of hay was made about that cigarette there being kind of very intentionally placed uh, along with uh, there's a shot of a camera watching the people watching the camera screens, um, uh, which I'm, I'm sure is referenced again, uh, the Pearl being the real experiment, of course. Um, Locke then turns on all the TVs. I mean, why not? Uh, and he sees ominously that one of them is showing the swan hatch. Uh, there's lots of goodies for us to to wonder about. A printer printing some sort of log, empty Dharma notebooks. You know, Dharma, the notebook. Uh, the pressure tube for sending messages. And, my goodness, a new orientation video. We love those. Hello. I'm Dr. Mark Wickman, and this is the orientation film for Station 5 of the Dharma Initiative. Station 5, or the Pearl, is a monitoring station the activities of participants in Dharma Initiative projects can be observed and recorded, not only for posterity, but for the ongoing refinement of the initiative as a whole. As Karen de Groot herself has written, careful observation is the only key to true and complete awareness. Your tour of duty in the Pearl will last three weeks, and during this time you and your partner will observe a psychological experiment in progress. Your duty is to observe team members in another station on the island. These team members are not aware that they are under surveillance or that they are the subjects of an experiment. Working in eight-hour shifts, you and your partner will record everything you observe in the notebooks we provided. What is the nature of the experiment, you might ask? What do these subjects believe they are accomplishing as they struggle to fulfill their tasks? You as the observer don't need to know. All you need to know is the subjects believe their job is of the utmost importance. Remember, everything that occurs, no matter how minute or seemingly unimportant, must be recorded. Each time a notebook is filled with the fruits of your diligent observation, roll it up, there we go, one of the containers provided. Then, simply place the container in the pneumatic tube and it will be transported directly to us. At the end of your eight-hour shift, proceed to the Pala Ferry, which will take you back to the barracks. Prepare for your next On behalf of the De Groots, Oliver Hanso, and all of us here at the Dharma Initiative, thank you. Namaste, and good luck. 
isn't it just great to have an orientation video, all those carefully selected details to, to tell us some new things, but not to make everything entirely clear. Uh, it gives us just enough information to make us wonder if the swan hatch is indeed important. Uh, it's also the first references uh, of the Apollo Ferry, as well as the barracks. Uh, the barracks part kind of being, uh, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, messed up by the the pull on the videotape. Also, excellent job making it look like videotape. I know that's not that particularly difficult. Maybe you shoot the guy and then copy it onto videotape, but they really they really sold it. Um, there's also, of course, echoes of the uh, the last orientation clip with uh, Locke and Echo uh, watching it. Um, this time, of course, Locke believes that the Swan is useless and he is defeated. Uh, there's a quick act break, and then, not wasting any time, Echo and Locke, they have our discussion. They have the discussion that we are, we are having, too. Work. That's a, that's a, a joke. Rats in a maze with no cheese. It is work, John. We are being tested. Tested? The reason to do it. Push the button. It's not because we are told to do so in a film. Oh. Well, then what is the reason, Mr. Echo? We do it because we believe we are meant to. Isn't that the reason you pushed it, John? I was never meant to do anything! Every single second of my pathetic little life is as useless as that button! You think it's important? You think it's necessary? It's nothing. It's nothing. It's meaningless. And who are you to tell me that it's not? It's just fantastic having Locke and Echo in the same scene, sharing dialogue, you know, the... The man without faith and the man with faith, uh, the man who's been beaten down by life and the man who's been been built up by, you know, uh, a very different sort of life. It's just fantastic. And it's a nice reminder of, uh, you know, faith from a faithful man and denial from a man who's been denying his whole life. It's just, or at least been denied his whole life. Just what a great scene. Uh, with that, we flash back to Echo getting ready to go on the plane. And uh, the not-dead daughter ends up running into him at the airport. Says you were a good priest. Who says that? Yemi. Speaking about my brother is not a joke. So you should be very careful what you see next. I saw him when I was between places. He said that you would come and see me. He said, even though you were pretending you were a good man. Who put you up to this? Did your father tell you to do this? I want you to know that he will see you soon. He said that even though you don't have faith in yourself, he has faith in you. Why are you doing this to me? What do you want from me? Why are you doing this to me? Because everything... All right? Nice little moment there for, for Libby to return. Uh, nice little crisscross moment. Um, it's also interesting that we have back-to-back -back scenes, essentially, where Echo is tested. 
uh, in one, uh, after the orientation film, he accepts faith, uh, and in the other, he questions it. But I think that the overall point is that uh, the lesson of Yemi uh, and this this message from Yemi uh, has guided Echo's sense of faith ever since. Uh, with that, we head back to the Pearl, and uh, Echo has picked up the mantle of the faithful, and he gives a rousing speech about faith and destiny, uh, as well as working in some sly recap there. Then with that, we go back to the Swan. Jack is easing the pain of the dying Libby, and Hurley speaks to her. Hey. It's Hurley. Hugo. I'm sorry I forgot the blankets. I'm sorry I forgot the blankets. I'll just pause the clip there for a moment to to reflect on it. It's just, it's honesty, it's raw, it's touching, it's, uh, you know, it's Jorge Garcia doing a a good job in the acting department. Um, It's kind of one of those things, what do you say in a scene like that? And it's all kind of summed up in the guilt that he feels. You know, I'm sorry that I forgot the blankets. Uh, You know. Clearly, the, he didn't do it. Clearly, it wasn't because of the blankets, but it's, it's this just kind of sense of, you know, uh, of, uh, of feeling so so lost, quite frankly. And, uh, well, with that, the scene then continues. It's okay. He made it, Libby. It's okay. It's all right. She's clearly struggling to say, Michael did this. Michael shot us. But but she doesn't. She, she simply doesn't. Uh, with that, she dies. And uh, we end up having just an excellent shot of uh, the broken uh, Virgin Mary statue of Faith broken, uh, while in the background Kate weeps openly and Sawyer hugs her. With that, there's a slow montage, Jack packing up, Echo and Locke returning, Hurley kissing Libby's hand, and then there's just a, a wonderful, inspired shot of a darkly lit Michael standing in the gun locker, a prison cell, just as... He must be feeling he's in a in a prison of his own actions, uh, or deserves to go to a prison for his actions. Uh, and the camera dollies in. He's looking at Anne Lucia's body on the cot. Michael looks simultaneously beaten and sinister. Uh, and we wonder what in the world could have driven him to do this. And with that, the episode is over. But of course, the podcast is not. On that uh, sad note, let's take a look at Lostpedia, which has uh, the following. Pierre Chang, who was uh, Dr. Marvin Candle, 
uh, from the uh, Swan Orientation film, calls himself Dr. Mark Wickmond in the Pearl Orientation video, and his left arm is no longer a prosthetic arm, which suggests that this orientation film was made before the film we see in Orientation. Uh, Also, this episode marks the first time in the series where one of the crash survivors refers to the hatch by its true name, the Swan, when Echo asks Locke about the orientation of his map. Uh, Lostpedia also mentions that in the dream when Echo is following Yemi up the cliff, he is walking with a limp. It turns out that uh, Locke is the one having the dream and saw himself as Echo. Locke has a hairline fracture in his leg and is walking with a limp. Certainly a nice touch there. Uh, Here's a fun one. Uh, In one scene in the Pearl, where Locke is flicking the light switch, there's a shot of his hand. But this hand actually belongs to Damon Lindelof. So there you go. And last but not least, uh, Michael shot Libby and Anna Lucia during the daylight hours. Libby was getting blankets for a picnic. And Jack and Kate and Locke went to get the guns from Sawyer. However, this episode has them walking the short distance back to the Swan in the dark, spending a short amount of time in the Swan, and then Sawyer and Kate are on the beach in daylight again, with Hurley looking for Libby and giving the impression that she had just left to get the blankets. Uh, it's That's a nice catch. That's legitimate. Uh, it's probably a production mistake. And um, I guess they can't, they can't win them all. With that, let's now look ahead to next week. Uh, next week's episode is 222, entitled Three Minutes. Uh, of course, is a Michael episode, and uh, we're going to, well, you know, just as this episode ended on us wondering what in the world could have made Michael do this, the answer is next week. A uh, whole bunch of reminders here. New episodes launched to the website, iTunes, and the Lost Podcast Network on Mondays. You can also check out uh, some of the other podcasts I'm uh, affiliated with, the PH Geek Podcast, available at phgeek.podbean.com well as the new Alcatraz uh, podcast, alcatraz.podbean.com. Uh, for this podcast, you can share uh, feedback in a bunch of ways. You can call the voice message line at 732-707-1815. You can say hello to me on Twitter, just like Andy from Glasgow did, uh, by say, uh, tweeting me at Looking Back Lost. You can send me an email, just like Tad and Bonnie did, by emailing me at uh, lookingbackatlost at gmail.com. And uh, you can leave a comment on the webpage, which actually, I should be corrected, is how uh, Tad had left information, uh, left uh, feedback, uh, by visiting lookingbackatlost.podbean.com. And uh, you can, of course, find the show on iTunes, where reviews are always appreciated. So thank you very much for listening yet again. Happy New Year, one and all. And I will speak to you all again next week with episode 222, uh, three minutes. Take care, and bye-bye.